0: This podcast is presented to you by Pastors Tom and Bonnie DeShal from Celebration Church in Harare, Zimbabwe. For more information, please visit celebrationmen.org. Well, we're going to talk today about the feasts of the Lord. The feasts of the Lord. Last week we discussed the need to return to a basic biblical understanding of God's will and His purpose for mankind. You know, we've missed so much in our interpretation of things because we've been infiltrated by Greco-Roman thought. The Greek thought bled into the Roman thought, and today, for the most part, you and I are Greek and Roman in the way we think, the way we cogitate, the way that our mind works. And uh, it is so contrary to the way that God thinks. In fact, God chose the Hebrew language because of the constructs of Hebrew. First of all, Hebrew is the only language in the whole world that has three points of reference. Pictograph, pictures, each letter is a picture. Each letter is a word and is phonetically important. And every combination of words, of letters, creates another word, And each of those words inside of every combination is also significant. And not only is it phonetic, it's also numeric. Every letter has a numeric value, and therefore God confirms his word out of the mouth of two and three witnesses every time that there's a word spoken that's from God. It gets to be very fascinating. Uh, Those of you that weren't with us at our uh, prayer conference, you missed Mark Biltz, Mark Biltz, Blew my mind. And uh, he began to take us back into the understanding of the Hebraic and some of the Jewish culture. But a major part of Hebrew culture is the understanding not of me, but of we. Not of the individual, but of community. And, you know, I've noticed that the breakdown of community has begun to happen worldwide. It used to be that we had strong families, we used to have strong communities, and we used to have strong nations, strong cities. Today we've moved away from community, we've moved away from family, we've come into the selfie age. More people are interested in themselves than they are in their community. More people are interested in themselves than they are the success of another. And because of that, we're seeing the breakdown of society. We even have families that are fighting over self-issues. One member of the family is more important than another member of the family, and everything revolves around that member. Sometimes it revolves around our children. Anybody listening to me today? So I wanna just review for a moment the difference between Hebrew and Greek thinking. I'm going to put up a couple of slides. I went through this last week. I'm not going to preach on it. I just want you to see. The the Greeks, they want to comprehend. The Hebrews revere. In other words, they understand that they won't understand everything, but they respect it. They have a respect for God. They revere things. They, They have an appreciation for things. The Greeks want to comprehend it. They want to know why. The Hebrews want to know what, what to do. They want to obey. The Greeks are caught up with the knowledge of the facts, get the right answer on the test. That's all that matters. But the Hebrew don't necessarily care about the facts as if they know this intimately. Do they know? Do they have a knowledge, a personal, interpersonal knowledge of it? The Greeks are individualistic. The Hebrews are corporate. The Greeks are desiring self-expression, whereas the Hebrew thinking are looking for obedience. What does God want? Not what I think I want in light of things. I love this. The Greeks look at the holiness of beauty, whereas the Hebrews think of the beauty of holiness. Somebody was telling me yesterday or the day before about, uh, I think it was a family, a 63-year-old woman who has had all the plastic surgery in the world and she's just so beautiful and her her daughters and her granddaughters are saying, look how beautiful she is. She's just, oh, and, and they're worshiping her beauty. But this woman has had a thousand miles of bad road. She looks good on the outside, but her life is a disaster. There's no holiness. It's just an outward expression of beauty. Whereas Hebrew thinking is, you see beauty and holiness, and you may not have the best-looking body, but you have a character that is unbelievable. The Greeks specialize, whereas Hebrew thinking is to integrate with all of life and to have a general understanding of all of life, not just a speciality. The Greeks want to master, the Hebrews want to serve. The Greek is, "My will be done." the Hebrew is, "Thy will be done." So you can think about that. That might be something to take photographs of and meditate on. Then we went on last week and we talked about how God sees things. In in Isaiah 46 verse 10, he says that he declares the end from the beginning. He declares the end from the beginning, declaring the end from the beginning. And we have to understand that that's how God has always been. God already knew in the beginning what was going to happen at the end. He is the alpha, he's the omega. He's the beginning, he is the end. And you can't surprise God. Some of us have kind of taken a bite of the apple that, you know, God's really not in control of everything. That God's out there, but he's only really interested in a few things. No, God has... Everything within the scope of his range of understanding of who he is. And you have to understand that. He declares the end from the very beginning. He knew what was going to happen. You're going to see that today in a very, very powerful way. So, as I stated last week, in Genesis 1 and verse 14, the Bible says that then God said, let there be light in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons For days and for years. So God created the sun and the moon for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. Now you're going to hear a lot about the sun and the moon in the days to come because there's coming a great debate around that subject. You're going to find out. But the sun and the moon were created by God for man, they were created to tell us about seasons, about times, about Years, about days. The Hebrew word for seasons is the word moed, M O E D. Not seasons as we know them, not winter, spring, summer, fall, but God's seasons. Uh, In fact, Leviticus 23, verse 2 says, Speak to the sons of Israel, say to them, The Lord's appointed times which you shall proclaim as holy convocations, he says, my appointed times are these. That word appointed times is that word moed, seasons. My seasons, my appointed times are these. So a better description of the word seasons or days or times is moed, which means God's appointed times. How many of you know if God appointed times from the beginning of the earth, he probably, because he changes not, probably expects us to know what his times and his seasons really are. Does that make sense? So this same word is translated feasts. Now, I know when I say feast in Africa, I know what you think of. I know what you think of. Road runner, sudza, gravy. Hey, we're having a feast. Today. In fact, some of you are going to go home from church today and have a feast. Amen. Hey, we're, uh, it's a feast every day. Every Sunday is a feast day at our house. Amen. Uh, I, I, I've been to a few feasts. You know, in Africa, too much food is never enough. It's amazing how much food we consume, and let's face it, we love our meat, huh? Mm. But the word "moed" is better translated. Divine appointment, God's pre-scheduled, pre-scheduled, pre-ordained divine encounters that are operating on a calendar that's very different from our Gregorian calendar. How many of you know the calendar that we operate in the world today is called the Gregorian calendar? The Chinese have a calendar called the Chinese calendar. How many of you know that the Chinese New Year just ended? How many of you know that their calendar is not the same as your calendar? Did you know that? So yours is called the Gregorian calendar. It's a Roman calendar. It's the influence of Rome. Okay. And so in the Bible, the the word days means holy days. That means a new moon, a Sabbath, a Passover, Pentecost, tabernacles, those are days. Years refers to Jubilee. Or shimitar years. We've heard a lot about shimitar. Okay, the shimitar is every seven years on the Hebrew calendar, God would cut off on the seventh year all debt. There would be a repayment of debt. There would be a forgiveness of debt. There would be a letting the land lie fallow for a year in the seventh year. Isn't that amazing? And in fact, God got so angry at Israel that he put them into 70 years of captivity because they hadn't let the land rest for 70 years. He says, I'm gonna let my Sabbaths be honored. I'm gonna let my scimitar years be honored and you're gonna go into captivity until the land rests like I told you to let it rest. Even our farmers, a good farmer understands that he has to let the land lie fallow every so many years. He won't farm it continually and he'll honor the land that all comes from biblical understanding did you know that? that 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 some of it's just good agriculture but it all stems from when we used to be, be believers of the bible well you can say oh my at least okay just tap your neighbor and say i think he's talking about you today just that's you that's you okay so days are the holidays or the holy days, the Sabbaths, the Passovers, the Pentecost. Years are the Shemitah years. Every 50 year. and by the way, this year is the 50th year in Israel. It's the Jubilee year. Very significant for you and I. Very significant for the body of Christ. We couldn't be at a better time right now to be studying this than right now. Now, the Islamic calendar, we said this last week, is based on the moon. Only the moon. They serve Allah, the moon god, and everything is cycled around the moon. Every feast that they have is a moon feast based on Diana worship. If you go back and study Diana, it goes back into a pagan god, just like much of Christianity worships a pagan system. Well, they fell into the pagan system of Diana worship, and it's parallel, 100% parallel. They've just added some things by Muhammad, but it's basically a pagan worship, and it's around the moon. It's a very accurate calendar, by the way. That calendar is very accurate, but it's not God's calendar. The world, our whole world operates on the Gregorian calendar, which is a pagan cal- calendar with pagan worship started by Julius Caesar and Pope Gregory. It's based on the sun. And scientifically, it's very accurate, but it's still not the calendar God uses. See, God uses the sun and the moon and he makes sure that they coincide and the sun and moon is to be used to determine when divine appointments should be. And this is critical for understanding the timing of God when he's going to intersect with humanity and human history. So, We've been gaining revelation and knowledge on the fact that much of what has been practiced in terms of religious celebrations concerning Jesus or Yeshua on the Gregorian calendar were actually pagan sun god ritualistic celebrations. Holidays that were designed to infiltrate and dilute God's divine appointments, Yeshua's or Yahweh's divine appointments with man. So I want to address one of those pagan feasts that's really not on the religious calendar as much as it is just on the Gregorian calendar that's right around the corner. It's called Valentine's Day. (laughs) Uh, You knew I couldn't leave this alone. Today, modern culture condones Valentine's Day is a as a day to celebrate love and romance, and I don't. Hey, I listen. I'll tell you, what, I have Valentine's Day every day at my house. <laughs> Amen. My wife is my Valentine. She's my sweetheart. Well, she's not really my Valentine, but she is the love of my life. Amen. <laughs> But let me tell you the origin of Valentine's Day. The origins are from the time of the Roman Empire, and it used to take place culminating on the 15th day of the month, but from the 13th to the 15th, a three-day festival, a three-day celebration by the Romans of the feast of Lupercalia, L-U-P-E-R-C-A-I-L-I-A. Now, this is a very, it, it comes from the word lupus. You have to understand that Rome was built by two young boys, Romulus and Ramus, who suckled at the breast of a, of a wolf. Lupus means wolf. So this is Lupercalia, and the idea was that drunken and naked men, they would take their clothes off, men, and they would sacrifice a goat and a dog, and they would strip the, that animal into strips of the the, the hide, they would make it into strips, and then they'd run around the city whipping women (laughs) with these strips. The idea was that they believed that these naked men running around whipping women, the men had to be drunk to do it, would make the women fertile. So it was an ancient Roman festival that was conducted annually on the 15th of February under the superintendence of a corporation of priests called the Luperci. So these were, they had priests for this occasion. The origins of the festival are kind of obscure, although they are a likely derivation from the name Lupus, the Latin wolf, and its connection with an ancient deity who protected herds from wolves and with uh, the legendary she-wolf who nourished Romulus and Ramus. It's a fertility rite. It's a festival also associated with the god Faunus. Okay, and I'm not going to get into Faunus, but it's also another fertility god. And you have to understand that fertility was very, very important in pagan rituals, just as it is in Zimbabwe. Just as it is in Zimbabwe. How many of the things that you do are to help make sure that you have babies? How many of the things that you do are to make sure that your cattle give birth, that your sheep give birth, that you have the right kind of crops in the field, that you get good rain? Uh, we beat the drums all night to which God? Uh, excuse me? To, to, to do what? To make sure that we get fertile crops, we get rain? I mean, all this is tied in, and i tell you what, it all goes back Clear back to Egypt, where all of our ancestors came from. Tap your neighbor. Say, don't get offended, even though he's talking about you. In the third century, okay, the Roman emperor Claudius II executed two men. They were Christians. By the way, their names were Valentine, both of them. These two men both had the same name, Valentine. And they were both on different years executed during the Lupercalian holiday, the Lupercalian festival. They executed these two Christian martyrs on the 14th of February. uh, Their martyrdom was honored by the Catholic Church with a celebration called St. Valentine's Day. These men were made to be saints. One of the men, this is amazing, but one of the men who was had been murdered, the jailer's daughter who murdered him, who mur- martyred him, this man fell in love with, the daughter. And he wrote a note, and he signed it from your Valentine. His name was Valentine. Okay, and that's where we got the idea of this became part of the tradition. Later, this guy, pope, uh, another pope, Galatius, he decided to combine St. Valentine's Day with Lipercalia so that he could expel, so, supposedly expel the pagan ritual. But this, this ritual was just a drunken party the only difference was the Christians put clothes on. But it didn't stop it from being a day of fertility and a day of love. The dumping or sacrificing of boyfriends began to be something associated with this day. And it's, well, it, it, before, in the Lupercalia thing, this was a day when, because women were being beaten and, and, and wanted to be fertile, they would dump their boyfriends on that day. It was the day... But as they became spiritual, as this became Valentine's Day, instead there were religious tracts that encouraged women to get back out there, mingle, not look at anything seriously necessarily, but be open to having fun. Later on, the church began to frown upon this because it began to have a licentiousness, a hedonism that they didn't like. So they then began to, in latter years, they began to say that, hey, breaking up with boyfriends is now heresy, especially on this day. In fact, Valentine's Day became the least appropriate day for, of the year to break up with your long-term boyfriend. In 1913, a company in the United States of America called Hallmark Cards in Kansas City, by the way, that's where my wife is from, uh, began mass-producing Valentine greeting cards. And February has never been the same since. It's become a day that you've been marketed so well. It's the third largest holiday in in the world. And they sell more greeting cards on this day than any other day of the year worldwide. One of the most popular symbols of Valentine's Day is Cupid. Who is known as a sweet chubby little angel representing true love. The word in Latin cupid. Cupido means desire, and it represents the God of desire, erotic love, attraction, and affection. Now, when I spoke to you earlier or or later last year about the origins of December 25th, we spoke about how the sun god, Nimrod, and uh, Samarimus, how Samarimus became his wife. Nimrod died... And supposedly had a baby named Tammuz from Samarimus who supposedly got pregnant by the rays of his immortal body, the sun. He He became the sun god known as Baal. And there was kind of this immaculate conception. Tammuz was also known as the hunter. And the bow and arrow signified hunting. Tammuz actually marries his mother and they have a very sexual, unbiblical relationship. And in one story, in, in one story, Tammuz's mother, Semiramis, becomes jealous of another woman who has eyes for Tammuz so that she orders Tammuz to take his bow and arrow and shoot her and pierce her heart and kill her. But she was so beautiful that Tammuz shot himself and the woman fell in love with him. Hence the myth is... Whatever gets shot by the arrow falls in love with you. Anyway, I just thought I'd throw that out for free. That's uh, really not part of my message today. Uh, and I know some of you will have a... You'll practice that pagan feast, Valentine's Day. You should love your wife. You should love your, the people in your life all the time, okay? We don't need a, we don't need a pagan feast day to do that, okay? And... Don't feel condemned if you do. Hey, listen, I think for 34 years of my marriage, I've practiced Valentine's Day. I've given my wife something. But this year, sweetheart, ain't nothing coming. (laughs) Not in the name of Valentine. I'll take care of you. I'll take care of the rest of the time. Don't worry, I got you. I got you covered, okay? All right. Let's talk about the feast. I want to talk about the spring feast today. Hold on to your hat. We got to go quickly. Uh, we're going to just go through the, the feast, the spring feast, okay? Put up the calendar of the spring feast, okay? First of all, I have, you have to understand there are four feasts that have already taken place biblically. We have the feast of Passover, the feast of unleavened bread, the first fruits, and the, Pe- the feast of Pentecost. These are known as the spring and summer feasts. Okay, the first three take place in the spring. Pentecost takes place, standing on its own, in the summer, 50 days after the day, the, the, the the feast of uh, Passover, unleavened bread, and fr- and first fruits. Uh, you see that these have come in times and seasons. God said that we should have Passover on the first month. Nisan, the 14th day. Its significance is that at Passover, it signifies the death of Christ. Unleavened bread, between the 15th and the 21st, is burial. And then first fruits is his resurrection. This all takes place in a seven-day feast period, okay? Of which, within four days, when these things, you'll see how they fall, within four days, you can see how Jesus was... Died, buried, and resurrected. That's why it doesn't really work on Easter. We always get confused because we try to use the Gregorian calendar. How could Jesus die on a Friday, be in the grave for three days, and then resurrect on Sunday? It never works. You say, how, how did this happen? It doesn't, this doesn't, it, it. Well, you have to understand that during the feast days, the day of the 14th could be a Tuesday or a Thursday or something like that. And, and you, there's actually the days are all there for this to happen exactly as God timed it. You're just on the wrong calendar. And I've heard Christians wrestle that thing to the ground to prove that, well, you know, and, and it's not true because it never was on the Gregorian calendar. It's always been on God's calendar. Amen. So remembering that feasts do not mean food but appointed times these seven feasts have past and future prophetic meanings. God gave Moses the dates; He gave Moses the observances and the feasts of the Lord, God's feasts, when He was on Mount Sinai. So, the feast of fast, the feast of Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, trumpets, and the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Hebrew word for feast again is moed which means divine appointments. All seven of these feasts point to and are fulfilled or will be fulfilled by Yeshua or Jesus as we know him. These feasts are separated into seasons. Spring feasts and fall feasts interspersed by the day of Pentecost or the the feast of Pentecost, which is 50 days after first fruits. The first Three feasts, Passover, Unleavened Bread and Firstfruits take place in the month of March or April on our calendar, the Gregorian calendar, which is the first month called Nisan. The fourth one marks out the summer harvest and takes place in late May or early June called the month of Sivan on the Hebrew calendar. These four feasts are basically what are called the spring feasts, and they come in the spring months of the Hebrew calendar. Today, I want to look at the spring feasts, the first three primarily. The biblical calendar is essential if we want to understand God's feast. Now, by the way, on the biblical calendar, there is a civil calendar that is calculated from the time of creation, beginning on the first of Tishri which falls around our Gregorian calendar date of around September. So in our secular calendar, Tishri would fall around our fall or our autumn. It is also the calendar used by the Jews for their secular or their business or their civil service. However, God made another calendar. There's a religious calendar that God instituted. To discern, to determine the cycle of the modim, that the, the, the word moed, moed, the moedim, which is the divine appointments. And in Exodus 12, verse 2, he says, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. And that happened to be the 14th day, well, Nisan was the first month. And on the 14th day of Nisan, which is, this year it falls on the 10th of April, by the way. Okay, but that's... God spoke about as the Lord's Passover. Numbers 9, we see that this time is to be kept, and this is, of course, the Northern Hemisphere, their springtime, on the 14th day of Nisan, which often falls for us in late March and early April, this year the 10th of April. So Nisan was to be the first month of the religious calendar, whereas Tishri is the first month of the civil calendar. Now you say, well, that's confusing. Well, it's confusing because you're not thinking. You see, some of you only operate on the Gregorian calendar, January to December. But others of us, especially school teachers, have a school calendar that they operate on. And and, and they don't think in terms of January as the first of the year. They think of, okay, when does school start? When are my breaks in between school? And their whole calendar is different. Some of you run businesses. You don't think in terms of January is the first of the year. You have a fiscal calendar, October. We, we, We had to close our books in October for auditing purposes. So which calendar is the right calendar? No, they're all on a calendar, but you just need to know which calendar you're working on. A fiscal calendar, a religious calendar, or a secular calendar, or a civil calendar. So in the Jewish mind, this isn't a problem. It shouldn't be for you and I either. We just need to understand it, okay? So Jewish history is where we're going to have to look if we want to understand ceremonial details of the Passover, because quite frankly, there's very little explanation in the Bible of what actually happened on these days. We know the history, but we don't know the ceremonies. But Jewish ceremonial history is very clear and it's passed down for generation upon generation thousands of years. But let's start with the story. It starts in the book of Exodus. 3,500 years ago where God told Moses that he's going to deliver his people from the hand of Pharaoh and that it's time for them to head to the promised land. Now I want you to understand something. I believe that God is leading Zimbabwe. I believe he's leading you and I into a new season and you're going to see a deliverance and we're going into a promised land. So I think we should be very careful how he does these things. You have to understand, God has to take care of some unfinished business before he delivers his people. And he's going to render justice for the wrongs that have been done to the Hebrew people while they were in captivity. God knew that the people needed to see justice upon the perpetrators. God is, one thing I have to tell you is God is just. And you may think you get away with something, and he'll let you, because he's very long-suffering, get away with something for a very long time. And he'll deal with you. He'll try to deal with your heart. But guess what? There comes a day of justice. There's a day of reckoning. So we have to understand that each of the 10 plagues that we see in the book of Exodus are aimed at one of the gods of Egypt. The Egyptians had... Pantheon of gods. They, 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 they were literally anything could be a god in Egypt. They had some very strong gods, very severe gods, and I'll talk to those in a minute. But in Exodus chapter 12, it says in verse 12, it says, "On the same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I'll bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt." I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. Even Pharaoh thought that he was a god. and had to be put in his place. In fact, did you know what the name of Pharaoh was? He would call himself I Am. I Am. Do you remember when God was dealing with Moses and said, hey, Go tell Pharaoh. He says, "How do I go to him? What do I say to Pharaoh? Who do I tell him that you are?" He says, "You tell him that I am that I am." See, if you're calling yourself I am, and you get confronted with I am that I am the I am, it, it, all of a sudden you know where the you know where the rub is. You know, and, and so. Moses understood that. There's a lot more to that story than meets the eye. So you go and talk to Pharaoh, and you're going to say, well, I know you are the I am, sir, but I represent I am that I am. The I am. There is no other I am. Are you you following it? So this is an epic battle between Moses and Aaron coming before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh thinks that they're going to do a few magic tricks as far as he was concerned, The first few tricks, he had his own magicians copy. They confronted their gods and they said, well, yeah, but we can do that too. But eventually it escalates to a level that Pharaoh would release the Hebrew slaves. By the way, just quickly, the gods that were confronted, the first god was the Nile god, the god named Happy H-A-P-I, not happy as in I'm happy, but Happy, H-A-P-I. And he turned the river into blood. The Nile River was turned into blood. Then the frog goddess, Hiket, H-E-Q-E-T, is where frogs overwhelmed the land and then all died. All the frogs died. The frog goddess couldn't keep her, god, her, her dog, her, her, her minions alive. Then Jeb, G-E-B, the god of earth. And the dust of the earth turned into lice. Then the God of the atmosphere, Shu, filling the air with flying insects. Then the bull God, Apis, who was proclaimed to be God incarnate. The cattle became diseased and died. Here here the God of cattle, the God of the bull, dies. Then Heka, the Egyptian God of magic and medicine, who is believed to be a healer. Almighty God brought boils on all the people, in effect, saying, Heal this. Next was the God of the firmament. His name was Nut, N-U-T. Nut. You can name your gods anything, I guess. And he was supposed to protect man from the heavens. So what did God do? God brought a a, a storm of hailstones out of the heavens to show the complete incompetence of that God. This was followed by a storm of locusts to disgrace Anubis the God of the fields, then the powerful God Ra, the sun God, who was the God they all worshiped, was shamed as Moses decreed that Almighty God would cover the land in darkness. And that transpired for three days of darkness. Finally, Almighty God brought death to all the firstborn of both man and beast. This is a direct hit on the God known as Ammon Ra, who was believed to be the creator of man, amazingly, this God was symbolized by a ram, so it should become, so it shouldn't be any surprise to you and I that God told Israel to put the blood of lambs on their doorposts if they wanted to survive the final plague. You see, according to the Egyptian zodiac, by the way. All the zodiac worship that we have that's resurging today is the Egyptian zodiac. The first month of spring, which happens to also be the first month of the Jews' Passover that God's commanding them, was the chief month of Aries, or the ram god, or this god. The constellation Aries, the Latin word for ram in ancient Egyptian astronomy, is associated with this god, Ammon Ra. Aries was associated with the venal equinox. Now, remember, I was about the equinox. You have the, well, the venal equinox is the moon at its highest point and the sun at its highest point, and it's called the indicator of the reborn sun. This is all their worship. Now, imagine how the Israelites had to feel. Here they are. They're slaves. They've been oppressed for 400 years, and God tells them, "Here's what I want you to do: go out and take a lamb that represents their God, and I want every one of you to slay a ram, a lamb, and barbecue it so that everybody in town can smell. And then I want you to take its blood and put it on the doorposts and the lintels of your house. Now, just, just stand up for a minute. I, I want you to do something. Just." Just for a minute. What they did is they would drain the blood. They drained the blood from this lamb. They slit its throat. They drained the blood. And they kept the blood, not to eat because they can't eat blood. But God said, I want you to take its blood and I want you to dip a hyssop. A hyssop is a, if, if, if I take you to, eat to Israel, I'll show you hyssop. It even grows on the wall of the, uh, Wailing wall, but you take a thing of hyssop, and he says, "Dip it into the blood." So, take your bucket of blood and dip the hyssop. Just everybody, help me. Help me. Take your uh, dip it. Now I want you to put it on the doorpost and the lintels of your house. So let's start with the lintels. The top lintel, the bottom lintel, the doorpost, and the doorpost. Excuse me? Let's try that again. The top lintel, the bottom lintel, the doorpost, and the doorpost. Let me tell you something. God leaves nothing to chance. Nothing. Sit down. Sit down. So this God is now supposed to be at the apex of his strength. The venal equinox, the Jews are barbecuing, the Hebrews are barbecuing their God. They're smelling in their nostrils, they're offended. They put the blood on the doorposts. The view for us as believers is the Egyptian gods are false. These are fake gods. But God has the true lamb slain for the redemption of Israel For the redemption of all mankind. And by putting the blood of the lamb that Egypt worshiped on the outside of their doorpost, the Israelites were making a statement. And what they're saying is, paganism stops here. The pagan worship stops at my doorpost, it's over. Folks, I don't know if you understand what this means, but even in our world today, The return of Egyptian symbolism, the return of Egyptian gods is almost at an epidemic proportion. Our hip-hop artists, most of your musicians, unfortunately, have gone back to Egypt worship. They've gone back to Egyptian worship. And if you study it, you're going to find out that when they do this on all their albums or they cover one eye, it's simply because of the eye of Horus. And they know it. These are symbols. The triangle. Those aren't triangles. Those are pyramids. Now, you, 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 may want, you, you, may not, you may be getting more information than you want today. But I'm going to tell you something. It's important that you understand that the world hasn't changed. Paganism has not changed. And the pagan practices that crept into the church through Christmas and Easter and all these other feasts are still pagan, and God's saying, wait a minute, but I have some dates here, I have some times, I have some seasons that I set that are holy to me, and I'll meet with my people at those times. But we've just been on the wrong calendar. And you know what, we've done it in ignorance, but the days of ignorance are over. So the Feast of Passover, let's go quickly, the Feast of Passover is known as Pesach, P-E-S-A-C-H in Hebrew. It's called the Feast of Salvation and is celebrated on the 14th of Nisan at sunset, at twilight. Now, I want you to just understand how powerful God, our Father, is in the detail of how the feast is carried out and how they are both prophetic and precise. Revelations 13, verse 8 says, All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast Okay, that's the the beast and the Antichrist. All whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. How many of you know that God already had in mind the Lamb that would be slain from the creation of the world, Jesus, before Adam even sinned? God was not taken off guard. God understood this thing. Understand this. The death of Jesus, Yeshua, did not come as a surprise to the heavenly father. He already had planned to resurrect him. In fact, imagine this. Imagine if you knew that your son or your daughter was gonna die, one of your children was gonna die. How much planning would you put into the details of their death? When it came to the planning of Jesus' death, God's son's death, his burial, his resurrection, He was in complete control from the beginning to the end of it. God didn't get taken off guard. It wasn't like, oh, my God, my son's dead. i got to figure out how to get man redeemed again. No, God knew. God determined way in advance precisely what day his son would die. Not only the day, but he knew the very hour. And he planned every detail of the entire memorial service, even down to the songs that would be sung at the memorial service. So let me just give you some history. Every Passover, every Passover, since the time they left Egypt, they sang hymns. Well, from the time of David, they sang hymns. They sang, these, these are stories that were told and handed down, but David codified them in the Psalms. But they sang the hymn from Psalm Psalms 113 to Psalm 118, known as the Hallel, H-A-L-L-E-L. And they were sung to the Passover lambs being led to the sheep gate on the northern gate of the temple. And these large crowds would come to Israel or to Jerusalem every year, and these are the psalms that they would all sing. But they were singing the same songs When Jesus was in the earth, when Yeshua was in the earth, as he was being led through the eastern gate. So as the sheep are coming from the northern gates, Jesus is entering in on the eastern gate. And here's what the song they were singing at the exact same time. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118 verse 6. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's repeated again in John, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is what the people, remember the children were singing, everybody was singing, and the Jews, the Pharisees and the Sadducees became totally out of their mind. How can they be singing this about, well, that's the song they were singing. It was the right hour of the day, and that whole city was singing that song as Jesus entered the Eastern Gate. Interestingly, at the last supper on the Thursday night, or on, on, on whatever the Passover was, Yeshua's last Passover Seder, when they're having the Passover meal, he and his disciples sang a hymn before they went out to the Mount of Olives. and we know what that hymn is. It would have been from Psalm 118, verses 21 through 23, and it says this, I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me and you have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. I have no doubt that the disciples had no idea what they were singing. They didn't see Jesus as the chief cornerstone, but Jesus knew what he was singing, and our heavenly Father knew what they were singing. Jesus was then taken captive that night, and the next day, he was... He went through the whole thing of being beaten, scourged, but on the third hour of the day, he was crucified. But you have to understand something, and this took place at 9 a.m., okay, in the morning, okay, the third hour of the day is 9 in the morning. Now you have to understand, there were 2,700 people, 2,700,000 people at the Passover that year. They came from everywhere. All of Israel came to Jerusalem for Passover. It was required of them. So nearly 3 million people show up for the Passover. Now imagine a choir made up of over 2 million people. All singing Psalm 118 at the same time of the morning sacrifice when Yeshua is being being bound to the cross. It was at this time at 9 in the morning that the priest would take the Passover lamb, and tie it, bind it, and put it at the horns of the altar so that it could be slain later on in that afternoon. What choreography. Only the master conductor could bring this to pass. Wait a minute, think about it. He had to have King David write these songs 1,500 years earlier about the death of Messiah Thousands of years in advance, and at that very moment, while they're binding the lamb to the altar, they're binding Yeshua to the cross. To the cross, beam, the cross beam of the cross. And here's the song that the people are singing. Psalm 118, verse 27. God is the Lord, which has shown us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords, even to the horns of the altar. The whole city singing this song. They're thinking about a lamb that they're going to have as the Passover lamb. God's saying, no, this is my lamb, the lamb of God, Jesus, who came to take away the sins of the world. Is this amazing? Yeshua died at 3 in the afternoon, which is precisely the time of the evening sacrifice and the slaying of the final final Passover lamb. That's when they slayed the Passover lamb at 3 in the afternoon. The Bible says that Jesus died at that exact time. Two million people at Passover and one lamb. Now, think about this. They have the Passover lamb, but every family has a Passover lamb. And here's how that worked. You had to eat the whole lamb. So they would sometimes gather into groups as families. Ten people per lamb is kind of the quorum that they have. So with over two million people at the Passover, one lamb for every ten people, there were 250,000 lambs that had to be killed in one day. That's 60,000 gallons of blood. Where does all that blood go? Well, if you come to Israel with us, we'll show you. Under the Temple Mount, where they would have been doing this, there are drainage systems, a sewer system. And that sewer system, now, now picture this this is east. So the temple faces east and everything from the sewer system, you would have the altar out here and the temple back here. So the altar is where they're slaying all this and all the blood would go underground into these sewer system and flush towards the Hinnom Valley, the Valley of Blood. Think about it. And underneath the Mount of Olives, under, not, not, underneath the uh, Mount Moriah, the, underneath the temple, are these big cisterns of water that they would use to flush the blood into the Hinnom Valley. Exactly while that is taking place, and God is in the Holy of Holies, looking towards Mount Moriah, or or or. or uh, uh, Mount of Olives. Jesus is on the other side of Mount Moriah. His side is being pierced and blood and water are coming out of his side. As the blood of the Passover lambs and water are being flushed into the Hinnom Valley. Who could have figured this all out? God has an appointed feast. God has appointed times. I don't know if you can imagine the size of the river and the thousands of gallons of blood that are rushing from the right side of the temple mount as the Passover lambs are being slain. The Passover underscores the redemption of yours and my life and of every human life through the paschal sacrifice. Jesus is the passover lamb. The second feast is the feast of unleavened bread. It's celebrated on the next day after Passover. The Israelites were to eat unleavened bread for 7 days. The first of the 7 days is the feast uh, of the feast were considered special sabbaths. Special Sabbaths. Uh, You can look that up in Leviticus chapter 23. It talks about all the special Sabbaths. Yeshua was buried on the first day of unleavened bread. The first day of unleavened bread. In Numbers 9, verses 3, Israel was commanded to keep this Passover on the 14th day of Nisan according to all of its rites and ceremonies. But we don't have a lot of rites and ceremonies. But one of the rites of Passover that has been handed down for thousands of years was removing of the leaven from the house. And during the feast of unleavened bread, we see in Deuteronomy sixteen four it says, Let no yeast be found in your possession for seven days. This is actually where the whole concept of spring cleaning comes from. How many of you do spring cleaning in your house? Well, that's what this came from is hey, clean the house. Get everything, get all the leaven, get anything dirty out of the house. So Deuteronomy six and verse seven. Israel is commanded to teach their children the commands of the Lord. You know that passage of Scripture. We're to teach our children when we sit, when we we stand, when we walk, all day long. And so to aid in learning, to make this fun for the children, back in the day, after mom and dad had removed all the leaven from the house, they would go hide a little bit of leaven for the children to find. And then dad would light a candle and the search and the fun would begin looking for the leaven in the house. And when the children would spot the leaven, they would point it out to their father. They'd say, we found it, there's the leaven, which represents sin. And the father would tell them, don't touch it, but allow me to come and remove it. He would then take a feather and gently sweep the leaven onto a wooden spoon. He would then wrap the wooden spoon with a linen cloth. So the leaven and the wooden spoon would be wrapped in a linen cloth. Take it outside of the house to the communal burning place where all the other neighbors in the, in the neighborhood were burning their leaven. So what is that all talking about? Well, the candle is used throughout the scriptures and is used as representative of God's word. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. The feather represents the ruach hakodesh, or the Holy Spirit. We see that in Psalm 91, he shall cover you with his feathers. The leaven represents sin that has to be removed. The feast of the unleavened bread reminded the celebrants that because of their redemption, they must be cleansed from their sin. We see this in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 7 and 8. It says, Get rid of the old ye so that the new, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, the feast, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This is all tied together. Luke 22, verse 19 says, and when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them and said, this is my body given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. What he's doing is he's talking of keeping the Passover, but he's saying this. From now on, don't do the Passover remembering Egypt, and being taken out of Egypt, do it remembering me. I am your Passover. He says, do this in remembrance of me, not of Egypt anymore. These are beautiful pictures. And finally, the last fruit is the fruit of, or the Feast of first fruits. It's called the Rishit Katzir. It's celebrated on the day after Sabbath in the Passover week. Now this week there's two Sabbaths, or there's two, there's two, there's two, uh, yeah, there's two Sabbaths, uh, and and you have to understand that that's how it fell. That there was a, 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 the Shabbat and then or, or the uh, uh, what is the Passover, the uh, Sukkoth, and then the, the 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 Shabbat. So that's how you have two feast days. Yeshua rose from the dead on this day. The, first, the feast of first fruits is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. He's most likely rose from the dead sometime bef- after sunset on Saturday, pro- probably in, in the midnight hours. All we know is this that he rose from the dead on the first day of the week, becoming the first fruits of the resurrection. Mark says in nine, Mark 16, too, Very early in the morning of the first day of the week, the women came to the tomb and found it empty. Found it empty. By the way, you have to understand that in the Jewish calendar, the first hour is six in the evening. Did you know that? It doesn't work on our, 12, our 24 hours, it works on a different time clock. 1 Corinthians 15:20 says, But Christ has indeed, indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The very same morning, through the time of the morning sacrifice. There were thousands of people bringing their sheaf of first fruits, that is the best of their crops, to the priest to being, have them wave before the Lord. This is the time of the barley offering, the barley crop. And they would wave, they would, everybody, there was a, everybody was a farmer. They would bring the best sheaf of their barley and the priest would wave these as a first fruit offering at the time of the harvest. That same morning, Yeshua, after speaking to Mary outside the tomb, ascended, stood before his Father, and presented himself as the first fruit of the resurrection, the Feast of First Fruits. The timing again is absolutely incredible. At the same moment, the high priest is waving the sheaf of the first fruits in the temple. Our first fruit, God, Jesus, is waving before his Father. He says, Here I am, presenting himself before his Father on our behalf. Everything the earthly priest has ever done was a divine dress rehearsal for the real event, which would prophetically fulfill and be fulfilled on the very day that God determined it to be fulfilled. Now, because the church has not been using the biblical calendar, but because we've been using one that's been started by Rome, we find that Easter often is celebrated even before the death of Jesus. We find that we're all messed up sometimes. That's why we want to return to the biblical feasts. Let's honor God. And when I come back in a couple of weeks, next week I'm gonna talk to you about Passover. Or not Passover, next week I'm gonna talk to you about Pentecost. And then when I come back in a couple of weeks after that, we're gonna talk about the fall feasts. Do you know what those are? Those are feasts that we're rehearsing for because Jesus is coming again. We don't know the day or the hour, but we do know the season and we know the time. And I can almost tell you what day it'll be, not the actual day because these fall on different days, but we know it's going to be on one of those feasts. So we know that those feasts, if we practice them, we'll be ready. Pretty exciting stuff. Thanks for listening. For more teachings and videos, visit celebrationmen.org.